So our task this morning is to address, or probably better stated, be addressed by the eighth commandment, thou shall not steal. Now the commandment, as a lot of them are in this second table, is simple enough. But as we've come to learn, it's more comprehensive in its scope. Rather than not stealing being the commandment's endpoint, rather than not stealing being the commandment's ultimate goal, um, it's rather the commandment's jumping off point. Not stealing is just where things begin. It's not the final word, but it's the first word that opens to us, opens up to us vast moral and ethical trajectories for us to explore. Now this becomes evident in the Apostle's interpretation. Summing up the entire law, he says, Romans 13.10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So the commandment is not merely about stealing, at least in a minimal sense, but whatever actions, economically, and in relation to possessions and etc., that might do harm to our neighbor. So it might be better stated that the commandment forbids stealing in its many forms. It, still, it forbids any kind of stealing. So by interpreting love as the commandment's aim, the injunction against stealing becomes comprehensive in its scope. And that is the trouble with the commandments. They demand perfection. We've done well by not stealing, but that hardly meets the expectation placed on us. Again, the apostle explains, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the purpose of the commandment is love. From a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. The purpose here, the aim, is love. So it's not so much that we might stop stealing, though it is, but more primarily about us learning to love from pure hearts. Its purpose is to train us up in perfection. And not stealing is merely the first step in that process. And so as it relates to the commandment, as I've stated... This opens up its prohibition in many other directions. Now, Martin Luther, in his catechism written for new converts, says this on the Eighth Commandment. It's not only when a man's strong box or his pockets are cleaned out that is to be labeled theft, but also when someone takes advantage of his neighbor in the marketplace, grocery store, butcher shop, wine or beer cellar, or workshop. In short, whenever people do business and exchange money for goods or services. So Luther understands the commandment to forbid any behavior which takes advantage of one's neighbor. Not merely cleaning out his pockets, but anywhere business or exchange is done. So in short, justice and equity are the bottom line. That all business would be characterized by fairness 
and integrity and a concern for the neighbor's livelihood. So we said last week that the seventh commandment permits no sexual desire without love. So here the eighth commandment prohibits no business or commerce or exchange also without love. It governs all our actions. Again, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, the commandment includes stealing in its many forms. More than traditionally understood, and to be quite honest, at least more than how I understood stealing. Now, in the first place, the commandment forbids outright theft taking that which does not belong to you. And I think for most, this is what comes to mind. Things like shoplifting, uh, robbery, larceny, or embezzlement. The kind of thing that uh, makes the news every night. Under the commandments, protection is one's personal property. More on that later. But also persons. The commandment protects personal property and also persons. Now it seems obvious enough. But the commandment forbids stealing persons too. Things like kidnapping and slavery. A little bit further along from the commandment, we read Exodus twenty-one sixteen: He who steals a man, whether he sells him or is, he fa- or is, is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. So while the scripture does not outlaw every form of slavery... Some meet a minimal ethical standard. It does outlaw the chattel slavery that has been historically practiced here in the States and elsewhere. Because that entire system depended on full-scale disobedience to the commandment against stealing. Dependent as it was on kidnapping people from their homeland. Now that much is obvious. The commandment forbids stealing persons and property. But there are other forms of stealing that the scriptures are concerned with. And chief among them, or at least one of them, is false measurements. Now as business was transacted in the ancient world, this was a primary way of perpetrating injustice. Using a rigged scale and weights, a merchant was able to either sell his products for more than it was worth, or to purchase something for less than it was worth. So Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. And so although scales and weights feature less prominently in our economy, unless maybe the butcher is stealing from you, the principle still applies. It exists in things like fraudulent merchandise, or upcharging, or I think most prominently in labor wages. Now this wasn't on my radar until my brother went out to work for a major seafood company. He shipped out to Alaska uh, to work in one of their processing factories and it turns out he was the only American there, or at least one of them. And now what the company did was hire out foreigners to pay them cheap wages, to work them nearly to death, and then to send them home. Because they could be more readily abused than an American citizen could. And virtually every major company shipping all its business overseas, this is the aim. Dishing out meager wages to the poor 
and making profit hand over fist. And without question, this form of stealing is the most prevalent, the most grievous, and yet the most overlooked. And I think surveying the scriptures, surveying the scriptures that this is the commandment's primary interest. You find stealing all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament, and most of the time it's mentioned, this is the purpose, to protect the poor and to maintain their justice. Usually thieves in the scriptures are not petty thieves. Teenagers running from the store or the gas station with a bag of chips. But it's the rich who are exploiting the poor for their advantage. Now there's countless passages to appeal to. And this is all rooted in the Exodus. God delivers slaves who are oppressed and then teaches them, now this is how you're going to live. You're not going to do that. And so this is all rooted in the Exodus that comes out of there. So I've got a lot of passages to appeal to. But naturally I've chosen the most graphic James chapter 5, verse 1 uh, through 6, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been held by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Seboeth. You have lived luxurious on the earth and have lied, led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So James, acting very much in the prophetic line of tradition, captures a theme that runs right through the heart of the Scriptures. God siding with the poor, the disadvantaged, the vulnerable, against those who oppress them, acting as their judge and their protector. And so it's not a secondary matter to the commandment. In fact, most of the time, as I've said, when stealing comes up in the biblical witness, it's about withholding wages and taking advantage of the weak. In fact, in Israel's economy, the law stipulated that they were get, to get paid that day for the work done that day. Not putting it off till later because the poor person would have needed it that very day. So, the commandment sets the poor front and center. It bids us to concern ourselves with their plight and to conduct our business our own business in a manner that favors them rather than opposes them. And so it's our duty as the strong to stand for the weak, to be their protectors and defenders from greedy and unjust men. Now consider Job. Consider Job, the man about whom God bragged. Have you seen Job? Have you seen what he's been up to? So, a little bit further along in the book of Job, he recalls his former conduct. He says, For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness to me, because 
I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came to me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. Listen to what he says. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. So the commandment bids us, like this righteous man, to put on justice as a robe and to deliver the weak from their oppressors. Now the commandment also includes other more obvious things like counterfeit money and charging interest and we could go down the line. But it also prohibits another thing that's worth our consideration. Outright sloth or laziness. The commandment forbids sloth or laziness. And this applies in two ways. First is to the um, employee-employer relationship. While at work, one is required to work. Indolence and carelessness are a form of stealing. In fact, it has a specific name. It's called time theft. When you're on the clock and you're not working, doing what you're supposed to be doing. So, a requirement that the commandment poses upon us for not stealing is simply good old-fashioned hard work. Something that is in short supply these days. Now, another requirement that the commandment imposes on us is simply work. On these matters, the scripture is clear. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 2. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and to work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and may not be in any need. So there's a vast difference between those who cannot work and are genuinely dependent upon the services available to them and what the apostle describes here. It's stealing. We can say without any without any ambiguity. It's stealing to receive support from a government agency or charitable organization when one can get a job instead. The onus is always upon personal responsibility. And the express purpose here, at least for the church, is witness. It reflects poorly toward outsiders to make a big fuss about good deeds and righteous living while one sits on their hands idling their days away. Now the apostle is the prime example here. As he himself says, that he worked day and night that he might not be a burden to anyone he says we proclaimed the gospel of God to you even the apostle who, who might have exercised his authority so that he could receive wages says I'm going to work day and night I'm going to be a tent maker that I might not be a burden to anyone so that's the church's witness and I noticed something about uh, the commandments in studying that it encompasses both the traditionally conservative concern and the traditionally liberal concern. And it's not that our moral outlook is wrong, but that maybe it's too narrow. 
The commandment demands personal responsibility, hard work, and discipline, and it demands social responsibility, concern, and protection for the poor. And maybe we've divided those, but they shouldn't be. They're, the two are not separate, but they're inseparable from one another. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Again, the apostle says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. So the church is exhorted to honest labor, and the conservative types nod their heads, and that honest labor is ordered toward a very specific end, to care for the poor. And the more liberal types nod their heads too. And therein lies the purpose of the commandment. It's hard work, personal responsibility, for the purpose of good deeds. We're working hard, we're doing what we need to do so as the Apostle says, we might have something to share, that we could be generous, like our Lord is generous. And so this naturally leads us to our next area of consideration, and that is the commandment's positive import. And it leads us to adopt a biblical understanding of our possessions. Now, quite obviously presupposed in the commandment is private ownership, the notion that certain things belong to certain people and them exclusively. The scripture makes a distinction between crimes against a person and crimes against their possessions. And naturally the former is prosecuted more severely than the latter. Yet, one's possessions are protected under the law. Because they're recognized as the property, as an extension of the owner. And of course, a person's possessions are incorporated, in some sense, into their personality. Now, it seems that the connection is weaker in our day, being that typically our possessions are not something we've made for ourselves, but a lot of the time, arbitrary purchases at the store. But one surefire way to understand the connection between a person and their possessions is to talk to someone after their home or their car has been broken into. It happened to some friends of mine a while ago, and the word they kept using was violated. They felt violated. It's not merely that their tools or their toys were taken, but something more personal and intimate than that had happened to them. And that illustrates that connection there. But the point is, the bottom line we're trying to make, or the point that we're trying to make, is that the Scriptures recognize private ownership, right? the right for an individual to have their own. But more crucially, the scriptures call us to recognize God's universal ownership. Indeed, our property and possessions are ours, but in the mode of gift. So they're ours, but in the mode of gift. So I can say of my home and of my vehicles and all the contents therein, mine, but never absolutely. I have to reckon with the more basic fact that all I own belongs to the Creator, belongs to the one who fashioned all things. What do you have, asked the Apostle, that you did not receive? 
Now, being owners of certain things can create in us the illusion that we're in control. Lords over our things. It's mine, we say. I can do with it whatever I please. But God's more basic ownership checks our pride. Our possessions are accountable to an authority higher than ourselves. Jesus says, sell all your possessions. Give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out and unfading treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Now if the same commandment is directed usward, we have no option but to heed Jesus' call. His demand to give up our possessions is the same as his demand to give up our lives. In both cases, he calls us to self-renunciation. Self-renunciation. And so we can introduce at this point um, Thomas Aquinas' distinction between possessions and use. Possessions and use. And I think that's probably the best way to slice up the biblical teaching on these matters. So in his masterwork, he makes a robust defense for uh, private ownership, arguing that a division of possessions is necessary to maintain some semblance of order and peace in human society. Just without that basic division, things are, he makes the argument, are going to devolve into either carelessness or outright war. So it's necessary. And he puts that under the heading of possessions, right? These are possessions, and our possessions are truly ours. Then he introduces another heading, which he calls use. Though our possessions are ours, we're not free to use them however we like. Instead, as it pertains to how we use our possessions, we're to understand them as being held in common. And what he means by that is that we should be ready to share with those in need. Remembering that God gave the good things of creation not merely to individuals, but to all mankind for its nourishment and delight. Stanley Hauerwas, I think he sums it up well. He says, the Christian tradition has assumed, given that we are creatures who live in a good creation, that whatever is ours is only so as a gift, grace. Therefore, goods are rightly seen as, first of all, goods that are in common. Any possession that we have is possession in service to the wider good. So, he introduces the concept of wider good or common good, and I think that's the right move. Our possessions, as we've said, are accountable to God's authority, namely, His justice. He has committed His creation to our care that we might enjoy it, that we might use it, that we might soak it up, that we might have it all. Yet, more importantly, that we might use it in a just manner. That there might be equity and righteousness. And so the Apostle's teaching on this, the Apostle Paul, it's definitive. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 13 and 15. He says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved, well, you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal, again, is equality. 
As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. The situation at hand is a collection that the apostle is taking up to aid the church in Jerusalem, suffering from famine. His aim, not merely for them, but for all the churches, is equality. That one church would gather and not have too much, and that one church would gather and not have too little. Like when the manna rained down from heaven, and each Israelite gathered enough for him and his household. That the abundance of one church would supply the lack or the need of the other church. There would be something sinfully incongruous about one church prospering while another church almost starves. So the apostle is teaching the one church to order its possessions toward the common good. Not merely to spend them on themselves, but to order them toward the common good. And the same applies with individual individuals within the church as well. The example here is always the early days in Jerusalem. Acts 32 through 30, Acts 4, 32 through 35. Luke says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. For there was no For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. So it seems that our tidy distinction between possessions and use is undermined here. The church's unity was such that not one claimed ownership over his possessions, but declared them to be common property. Our categories of possession and use are blurred into one. And this certainly seems radical. Conservative uh, commentators get a little squeamish when we start talking about common possession and common property here. And rightly so. It is radical, the early church and how they practiced. But it's not that radical. It's not that radical. It's necessary to consider what the church is, a family, a family. That's, that's what this is. And this common property business is standard fare for any family. So I may complain to my wife about her stealing my t-shirts and all my clothes, but really they're as much hers as they are mine. I gave up any right to exclusive possession when I said, I do, they're hers. And I even get a bit offended sometimes when a family member is too modest about asking to borrow something. It's yours. You're my family. You hardly need to ask. Just let me know and do what you need to do. It would be a strange family where the lines of possession are not blurred, where we can't just freely have one another's. Now, the same holds true. The same holds true in the church. Obviously in a different manner, but the principle. It's our Father's will that as His children, we would learn to share with one another as He does with us. And thankfully, this communal spirit is already present in our church family. I can hardly number the times that someone's come up to me and told me that whatever I need, 
they've got me covered. People have offered vehicles and time and money and etc. Not merely to me, but to other people in the body. The spirit of love and of unity and whatever is mine is yours. You can use it. Is absolutely there. So please don't think that I'm chiding our church. That's hardly the case. Instead, I'm expressing my gratitude to God that I've inherited such a generous people to pastor. So that's the ancient standard that our brothers and sisters set for us. And truly, I have not the slightest doubt that if the situation called for it, that if a brother or sister fell into this great need, that we would be ready to meet the challenge. So as it pertains to the commandment, this is what love requires, a readiness, indeed an eagerness, to share with one another in time of need. So yes, let's not steal from one another, but more importantly, let's not steal love from one another because the scriptures say it's the only thing, the only thing that we owe to one another. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And that's quite a perspective shift. To not, lo- to not love our brothers and sisters is to steal from them and to break the commandment. To withhold something that we owe to them. Don't owe anything to anyone except love. So we owe our love to one another. Let us give it freely as Jesus has given it freely to us. And now as we close, ultimately the commandment is about dethroning mammon in our hearts. According to Jesus' interpretation in the Sermon on the Mount, remember, the commandments are reoriented inward. It's about not stealing, but more to the point, about not setting our hearts on earthly treasures. As I've stated, the commandment's intention is that we'd be perfect in love in relation to our neighbor and our possessions. Now, the inner disposition that motivates stealing or even stinginess is greed. It more so characterizes stealing done in the stock market and places like that rather than at the general store unless one is greedy for hostess snacks and second-rate goods. So I'd like to leave that greed aside for a moment because it's going to come up again in the 10th commandment about not coveting. We're going to talk a lot about greed. So I want to move on from that and address something else. Rather than storing up for ourselves treasures on earth, that is, for our own self-indulgence and exclusive wants, Jesus instructs us, quite simply, to store up treasure in heaven. And his point is, is where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Our treasure, our possessions, our wealth, has a way of capturing our hearts. And the only way to resist its pull is to employ it rightly. The only way to resist the pull of our treasure is to use it rightly. And so commentators make this passage, the one in Matthew 6 about possessions, they make it about the attitude. It seems that we can do whatever we want with our possessions, according to their interpretation, as long as our hearts are not set on it. So as long as it doesn't affect you in here, don't worry about it. But that's wrong. 
It's not merely the attitude, but also the actual use of treasure that's in view. Either we could store it up on earth or in heaven. To dethrone mammon in our hearts takes outward action, not merely attitude. And this seems to be the apostle's exhortation. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 19. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So in order that our hope might not be fixed on riches, it must be used in a certain manner, generously, abounding in good works. And only then is our hope in God and the future. Only then are we storing up treasures in heaven. As Jesus says, we cannot serve two masters, claiming that our hope is in heaven on the one hand, while on the other, storing up treasure on earth. It's an, it's an either-or proposition that Jesus makes. So, certainly, greed takes the blame here, but also anxiety. Jesus links a preoccupation with treasure to a concern for the future. And I think mammon, money, right, that's the, the, the ancient name for it, the God that it was ascribed to. Mammon is not so much the God of treasure as he is the God of security. People serve him because the peace and the comfort that he gives them. He protects them from earthly ills such as old age and famine and sickness. Or so they think. We admire a hardworking man and a successful man, but it may be that fear inspires him and that he trusts in treasure to secure his future. Outwardly, things look good. Maybe that he's even blessed by the Lord, but inwardly, his heart is not right. And the very treasure that provides him with his sense of security also carries with it the seeds of his anxiety. It's uncertain, as the apostle says. Perhaps the market will collapse. Perhaps he will make an unwise investment. His treasure provides only the illusion of security, and moreover, only an earthly security. And so Jesus does not belittle our concern for the future, but any thought that our treasure can secure our future. He replaces anxiety's incessant questioning and its desire to have more, to, to still the fear. He replaces that with faith's calm resolve. We have a Father in heaven. We can live like the birds of the air, like the lilies of the field, taking no care for tomorrow, because He cares for them and He esteems us of far greater value than they. I have been old and now I am young, says the psalmist. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends and his descendants are a blessing. So happily, we commit our needs to the Father's care 
and commit ourselves to greater matters. Is not the soul more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus asks. We seek the kingdom and we store our treasures in heaven. As the apostle says, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. After these things, we seek. And so, I'd like to close by turning our attention to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And in praying those words, we learn to acknowledge our poverty, that we're beggars, and that our only provision comes from the Father. Now, it's not hard to hear an allusion to communion, to the Lord's Supper um, in the prayer. The bread that the Father gives us, that which we ask for in the prayer, is the true bread from heaven, His Son, Jesus Christ. I have come, or I am, He says, the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is the only bread we need, indeed, the only treasure we need. In him, our hunger is satisfied. In him, our thirst is quenched. And we gladly receive him from the Father, true bread from heaven. And as we prepare for communion now, remember that the elements are not empty signs, but that in some way the Father gives us his Son by the Holy Spirit. It's a participation in the blood and body of Christ. So receive these elements for what they signify. The body and blood of Jesus Christ. The true food and true drink. And so as those who are poor in spirit, knowing that He is our only good, with thanksgiving and praise, we receive Jesus as the Father's gift to us. For you know the scripture says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. So take time now on your own as just a few minutes to pray and focus on the gift that the Father has given us, his Son, Jesus Christ, who is our true treasure and heaven. Take time to pray and thank the Lord on your own.